For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 80, Servant of Great Gods. This is part 4 in our look at the life and reign of Amunhotep II. Today, we take a look at Amunhotep's unusual choices of religious worship. The king had a fondness for gods who were different from other ones. They were different because two of them were not even Egyptian, and one of them went by the name of the Great Sphinx. Today's episode is brought to you by Natalia Kisanin, Dennis Nardine, and David Lindenbach. Thank you for your support, folks. Please enjoy the show. The year is approximately 1430 BCE, being regnal year 14 of King Amunhotep II, Lord of the Two Lands. Before he became king, Amunhotep II had spent his days in carefree pursuits. One of these, which I recounted a few episodes ago, saw the prince going on a chariot ride through the city of Memphis and visiting the Giza Plateau. He went out to Giza to look upon the great pyramids of Khufu and Khafre, pyramids which were now 1200 plus years old. He rode up to these monuments, including the Great Sphinx, and he gazed upon the work of kings now long dead. While he was there, Amunhotep had allegedly conceived a vision of his destiny. Quote, the prince would spend time at Giza, leading his horses around and observing the excellence of the pyramids of kings Khufu and Khafre, the justified. His heart desired to make their names live, but he kept this to himself until there would occur that which his father Ray had decreed for him. As a prince, Amunhotep had imagined a plan for the Giza necropolis. Now that he was king, he put that plan into action. In his first decade on the throne, Amunhotep II ordered the construction of a new monument for the Giza plateau. This would be a temple erected next door to the monument that we know as the Great Sphinx. It was the first royal monument at Giza in more than a thousand years. Today, it is a very well-documented piece of work. Amunhotep's new temple was named Herwer Hor Em Aket, or the Great House of Horus of the Horizon. Horus of the Horizon was the ancient name for the Sphinx. It was a reference to the cult of the sun god Ray, who was most often celebrated in the form called Ray, Horus of the Two Horizons. Amunhotep associated the Great Sphinx with this incarnation of Ray. This was totally appropriate, because as we saw way back in episode 6, 
That was part of the Sphinx's original purpose. The Sphinx was a symbol of one of Egypt's most enduring cults, the cult of the sun god, the cult of the eternal kingship. Amunhotep and his contemporaries recognised the inherent royalty of the Sphinx and its association with the monarchy. So, the pharaoh commemorated his new temple as a great monument for the cult of the most ancient kings of the land. Quote, his heart desired to make their names live. Then, his majesty remembered that place where he had enjoyed himself, in the vicinity of the pyramids and of Hor em Arket, the Sphinx. The king ordered his workers to make a resting place there, and to place a stela of limestone in it. Its face would be engraved with the great name of Akkeparure Amunhotep II, beloved of Horus of the Horizon, given life forever. Amunhotep commissioned this new addition to the Giza Plateau, an ornate temple next to the Sphinx itself. The new monument would be a celebration of the Great Sphinx, of Khafre, of Khufu, and of course, of Amunhotep himself. So within a few years of taking the throne, Amunhotep's pet project was well underway. Royal craftsmen, architects, and labourers were working diligently, hauling bricks and stone ready to initiate the great construction. They dug into the sand, flattened the ground, and cleared a space. As they worked, the sombre face of the Great Sphinx looked down upon them. 3,300 years later, an Egyptian team was working at the site of the Sphinx. Dozens of workers were digging through the sands, clearing space around the great monuments, in search of new archaeological remains. They were led on site by the great Egyptian archaeologist Selim Hassan Bey. Professor Hassan described the day like this, quote, On September 29, our men were working on the clearance of a large mound of mud deposits and ruined mud-brick buildings at a spot just a little to the north of the Sphinx. In this spot, we brought to light what appeared to be the top of a large limestone stealer, above which was a mud-brick ruin. Eagerly, we concentrated all our energies in sinking a shaft down the face of the stone, and found that our first suppositions were correct. We had discovered a large stealer of the 18th dynasty, bearing 27 rows of hieroglyphs in a perfect state of preservation. With careful haste, we cleared away the mud deposits and broken pot sherds with which the face of the stealer was encumbered, and we were able to read upon it the cartouche of Amun-Hotep II. End quote. The Temple of the Sphinx emerged completely unexpectedly over the course of a few days in the late 1930s. As it did, all of the ancient work of Amun-Hotep's masons, building for the glorification of the sun god, was restored to its place in the um, sun. The work here uncovering the temple and that stela has given us the record that I use today. The great Sphinx stela from which I have been reading was discovered in 1936, and as it emerged from the sands, it shed new light on the life and works of Amunhotep II. The temple of the Sphinx which Amunhotep commissioned was a roughly square building, with its main entrance facing directly towards the great statue. In the innermost sanctum, this is where Amunhotep placed his great stela. 
The temple was decorated with a gorgeous limestone doorway, inscribed with the names and titles of Amunhotep. This has been reconstructed and now stands in its original position. Inside the temple, side rooms and chambers provided extra space for storing offerings and temple tools. As Hassan Bey and his team excavated, they found all kinds of ancient items given by the faithful in worship of the sun god. Quote, in the mud, debris and potsherds surrounding the stela, we found many votive figures of lions and sphinxes, the lion seeming to have been particularly sacred to the sun cult. One notable example has a most pleasing appearance. The expression on the face of the lion, the pose of the body, and the crossed paws being very natural. If not actually modelled from life, it must have been made by someone who was well acquainted with the leonine form. The site of the Sphinx was, in the 18th dynasty, starting to become a place of pilgrimage. Egyptians from the local regions would journey out to the plateau and there make offerings to the splendid image of Hor M. Aket, Horus of the Horizon. Amunhotep's temple here provided a place for this to occur, and it seems that within just a few years, the Sphinx cult center was turning into the go-to place to make offerings to the great spirit of Ray. Amunhotep had given the people of the region a favored place in which to make their offerings before the statue of Khafre, and thus the great god Ray himself. Among Amunhotep's pious acts, this ranks as one of the best. Selim Hassan Bey and his team excavated the great limestone stela erected by Amunhotep's masons. As they did, they were revealing far more than just the worship of the Sphinx. They were also adding to the rich history of Egyptian religion in general, and how Egyptians of this time period were dealing with the idea of foreign gods. At the top of Amunhotep's stela, there are carved images of the king standing before two gods. What's most interesting about these gods is that they're not Egyptian, they're foreign. In a strange moment of internationalism, Amunhotep partly dedicated his great stela to the god Reshep and to the goddess Astarte. These are two gods of Canaanite origin. They come from the Near East, and this is their homeland. And yet, these gods arrived in Egypt during the time of Amunhotep II, and before too long, they were receiving their own cults and worship in the land of the Nile. Astarte was a Syrian Canaanite goddess, the equivalent of Mesopotamia's Ishtar. Astarte was a goddess of love and fertility, but also of war. I think the Egyptians would have recognized this quite easily, as kind of the Syrian version of Hathor. Interestingly, Astarte is particularly associated with chariots and horses, which makes her perfectly appropriate for Amunhotep II, the sportsman king who loved nothing more than to raise horses, to race chariots, and to be involved in all the martial sports. She was shown as a naked woman, usually on horseback, brandishing weapons and wearing a great crown, or a headdress with bull's horns. Astarte was a warrior, a powerful being. For a victorious king like Amunhotep, she was perfect. So that was the goddess Astarte, one of two beings whom Amunhotep II introduced to the Nile Valley. 
but she had a partner whom Amunhotep seems to have liked even more. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We have now seen King Amunhotep II's piety towards the Great Sphinx and to the Syrian Canaanite goddess Astarte. Now, it's time to meet the other foreign deity, Reshep, whom Amunhotep seems to have particularly favoured. Reshep was, like Astarte, a Syrian Canaanite war god. He was associated with storms, and he thundered across the heavens, raging with great power. Amunhotep, warrior that he was, seems to have appreciated Reshep when he encountered him, and so the king brought the cult of the god back to Egypt for the first time. Before Amunhotep, there are no references to Reshep in ancient Egyptian history. So it seems, on the basis of the available evidence, that it was King Amunhotep himself who brought the great god Reshep into the Nile Valley. Reshep appears in Egyptian art as a male deity. He doesn't have any particular animal that he is associated with, although sometimes the crown he wears seems to have the appearance of the head of Seth. Reshep wears a long beard, but not a beard like the pharaohs. Instead, it's a long beard like the Syrians. Reshep was always represented as a foreigner. In no way was he made to look like a classical Egyptian. So it's one of those rare instances where the Egyptians genuinely embraced the difference of a particular deity. They acknowledged and almost celebrated the fact that Reshep was a foreigner, an immigrant to their own land. Unsurprisingly, this is also what we see with Reshep's temples. Reshep was a foreigner. It follows that many of his worshippers were probably followers. And so, the temples of Reshep are located where foreigners were located. There was a temple to the Reshep in Memphis. This might have been founded by Amunhotep II, or it might have been later. There were also temples in the Delta, built during the 19th dynasty and later on. References to Reshep can be found throughout Upper Egypt and Nubia as well, suggesting that the cult of this war god became reasonably popular among the elites of Egyptian society. So, over time, a foreign import to Egypt, the god Reshep, became quite popular and well-regarded. This is all thanks to Amunhotep II, the king who slew his way through Syria and Canaan, brought back their gods and their people, and so set a new phase in Egyptian social and religious history on its path.
So that is the god Reshep, introduced to Egypt by Amunhotep II, but for millennia after, a prominent member of the Egyptian pantheon. Welcome, Reshep! It certainly seems as though Amunhotep had a taste for the dramatic gods. How else do you explain his worship of Astarte and Reshep, Syrian Canaanite lords of war? Or his favour towards the Sphinx, that enigmatic monument still guarding the Giza Plateau, head of King Khafre, body of the lion, destined to be the object of worship for millennia to come? It seems that King Amunhotep II had an interesting role to play in the development of Egyptian religion. Which is funny because you don't hear about Amunhotep all that much in the religious histories. Scholars tend to focus on more dramatic or notable figures, but Amunhotep II actually deserves more credit than he's commonly given. In the Great Sphinx Stela from which I have been reading throughout this episode, the king included a lengthy prologue describing his power and the glory and how the gods loved him so. Within this text, he makes a few interesting references. References to the idea that his rule as king is universal, shining over the whole earth as if like the sun god Ray. Quote, The living Horus, strong bull, who conquers all lands by his might, the offspring of Rahorakti, shining seed of the god's body, whose being the goddess Neith fashioned, all countries are under his fear. The people are in dread of him. All the gods have love of him. Amun himself made the king rule that which his eye encircles, what the sun disk of Re illuminates. Amunhotep has taken all of Egypt. All countries have his protection. His borders reach the rim of heaven. The lands are in his hand in a single knot. Egypt is his. No one rebels. In all that Amun's eye lights up, the strength of Montu is in his limbs. In power, he equals the son of Nut, Seth. His portion is that on which Ray shines. To him belongs that which the ocean encircles. The southerners come to him bowed down, the northerners upon their bellies. He has gathered them all into his fist. His mace has crashed upon their heads. So apart from being a barrage of names and deities and concepts, Amunhotep was getting at one pretty basic theme throughout that little passage. He was saying that his rule as pharaoh is universal, encompassing the whole earth. More specifically, he refers to it as that which the sun disk of Re encircles. It's interesting that Amunhotep should mention the sun disk. The sun disk, or Aten, was a very old form of ray, but always a minor one. It referred to the literal shining orb that we see in the sky, and to the light which emerges from it. If ray was the sort of power behind the sun, the Aten was the physical sun itself. Now Aten had been slowly gaining slightly more and more prominence over the past few generations. But it's quite interesting that Amunhotep II should evoke him specifically here. In the days of the Egyptian Empire, with their rule extending from Sudan all the way up to Syria, the Egyptian kings began to conceive of themselves as having power almost limitless, kind of a sun-never-sets-on-the-British-empire kind of idea. The territory they ruled was so vast for the time that they began to conceive of it as 
literally covering all which the sun disk illuminates. It comes down to an idea of the king as a universal ruler, of Amunhotep as the monarch of the whole world. This is something he was evoking very specifically. Now it would be easy to see him as incredibly arrogant, and for my money, Amunhotep certainly was. But it's also quite easy to understand where this idea was coming from. Amunhotep was a monarch almost without peer for the time. No other kingdom could quite challenge Egypt on its own terms. Add to that the fact that many different peoples of different lands were now coming to live in Egypt, and different gods were also coming to the Nile Valley. It's not hard to see how Amunhotep might have conceived of his kingdom as a truly international one, a cosmopolitan empire, one of the first of its kind in history. With that, the idea of the kingship of Egypt began to take on new dimensions, with the idea of its power seemingly being limitless and extending all across the earth, just like the rays of the sun. This is going to be an important development in Egyptian society. As the idea of the monarchy becomes more and more universal, and the power of the pharaoh seems to stretch from horizon to horizon and even beyond, the notion of what a king represents, and the role that the king should play in society, is going to slightly but fundamentally change. For those of you who know your Egyptian history, you might be able to guess what I'm getting at. Essentially, what was taking root during the days of Amunhotep II was a religious process that was eventually going to culminate in the reign of one of Egypt's most strange and unusual kings. In many ways, the religious policies of Amunhotep II are a sort of prologue to what we will later see in the reign of Akhenaten. That's a story for another day, but it's definitely worth introducing here. For now, I'm afraid it's time to say farewell. That's all the time we have for today. On the next episode, we'll move from the shining world of the sun to the dark lands of the underworld. We're going to explore King Amunhotep's tomb and the incredibly important religious texts that were becoming popular around this time. What am I talking about? Why, the Book of the Dead, of course. See you soon. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of and supported by the Agora Podcast Network. Check out agorapodcastnetwork.com for some great podcasts on a variety of subjects. Music for this episode was done by Keith Zizzer and Michael Levy. Head to egyptianhistorypodcast.com for access to these musicians' fantastic compositions, and to others that I use throughout the show. Or you can find us on Spotify. I've put together a History of Egypt podcast music playlist on Spotify, in which I collect about three hours worth of music that evokes ancient Egypt. What's more, this music is arranged in a sort of chronological fashion, beginning with creation, going through the rise and fall of the Nile Valley, and ending with Cleopatra. Search for History of Egypt podcast on Spotify. I think you're going to love this music.
Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.